and I knew exactly what to do, but in a much more real sense, I had no idea what to do. What would it look like if we made that into a Venn diagram? No, we need an acronym for that. It's Peggy Enderly, and you're listening to The Art of Ven, the learning and talent podcast that's about your thriving in life and ministry. We take ideas that may feel like they're in opposition and explore how they go together. Today, my guest is Paul Tukunaga, executive coach and senior consult with learning and talent. Hey, Paul. Hey, Peggy. How's it going? Going pretty well. Thanks. You've been on staff for a really long time, and you've worn pretty much every hat in university, including serving on the cabinet. What was your favorite role? I would say my favorite role was uh, when I was Asian American ministry coordinator. I did it three years part-time, and then I liked it so much, I turned and did it 11 more years full-time, so 14 years total. So a little context is when I came on staff with InterVarsity, uh, there was either one or two Asian American staff. Today, I think we have something like 250 plus Asian American staff around the country. So I would say the thing that I'm maybe most proud about during those 14 years was our strategic emphasis of developing and equipping young Asian American leaders. And we did that through staff conferences that we held. We did it through books we wrote. Uh, programs like the Daniel Project. When I look around InterVarsity now, like I am just amazed at the leadership that Asian Americans provide for InterVarsity. I would say in, in all humility that I think we've made InterVarsity a stronger, a more hospitable, a more communal organization. And I also think that we have upped InterVarsity's food game at team meetings and <laughs> conferences. So yeah. no more pretzel mixes and sandwiches when there are Asian Americans there. Yeah. So so you look at Tom Lin and you think, I was a part of helping him become a, the president. <laughs> I've known Tom for a long time since I think his first year on staff in New England. When Tom became president, I felt like that uh, old guy in, I think it's first or second chapter of Luke, Simeon when he gets to hold the baby Jesus and basically said, I can die and go to heaven. You know, <laughs> I felt that way when Tom became president that, um, you know, my work is over. I can retire now. I, um, I just didn't have words for it when uh, I realized Tom was going to become president. So right now you are an executive coach and senior consultant. So how does one end up with such a cool job? Yeah, when I got that title, it was given to me. I didn't make it up. Um, in 2017, I transitioned off the cabinet. And at that point, you know, I wanted to stay with InterVarsity, but I wanted to work more directly in leadership development. I figured out after a while that I have this rhythm to my staff career where I supervise then I have to step step back and not supervise. Then I come back and supervise. I found that I could do supervision well for maybe eight or nine years, and I would need a break. That's still quite uh, a tenure. 
I think some of us could do one role that aren't really totally using our strengths for maybe a few years, but eight or nine years is still impressive. Ever since I was an area director, Peggy, I had this mantra that I would share with staff I supervised. I would tell them, I want you to work in a way that you could do this job for 10 years. So figure out how to work this job so you can do it long-term because it's really the longer-term staff, those who work seven, eight, 20 years in a position are the ones who are going to make the deepest impact. Obviously, it was my own mantra that I, I thought in 10-year blocks. Sometimes I made it to 10, other times I made it to maybe nine or eight, but I always thought sort of longer term because I wanted to have an impact and I figured I've got to stay there a number of years to, in order to have that. You've done a lot of thinking about being developed as a leader through each decade of life and developing leaders is what you're doing right now. For you, as you reflect back on your decades of ministry, how are you different now than you were in your 20s? I think in in some ways, um, I'm not different. The thing that hasn't changed inside of me is I still have a lot to learn. And I still like being challenged by new assignments. So for me, development has always been uh, lifelong. There's more to learn. You can be better. Uh, Learning never stops. The difference, I think, now, you know, I'm 68. I'm in my 47th year within a varsity. The difference now is everyone that I'm learning new things from are younger than me. I actually don't find that humbling. I find that exciting. I find that I have tons that I have to learn from them and their generation. I think What's different in in my 20s is that in the 20s, my thinking was, what do I have to offer students? What do I have to offer in a varsity? And I'd ask myself, is what I have to offer good enough? Will inner varsity discover that I'm an imposter and I'm not spiritual enough to be on staff? It, It probably wasn't until my 30s that I concluded that I was legit in what I was doing, that I was not an imposter, and that I actually had something authentic to offer. So as you do some of your own reflection, thinking about your 20s, what were the things that you feel like were really important for you to work on? It probably took me, Peggy, until I was 40 or so to think back and reflect on my 20s. So later, maybe in my 40s, I started to reflect on what happened in my 20s? And did I spend them well? And did I get the most out of them? And then it led me to the question, what's a decade of the 20s best for in one's development as a leader? And I guess in a phrase, I would say the 20s are for experimenting. They're for trying a lot of different things, trying different ways of doing things. And then figuring out or beginning to figure out what your strengths and weaknesses are. So I had a a mantra in my 20s of what different arenas, what different styles of operating, what different styles of leading can I just experiment with and see if some of them stick? And then find out that which are the ones that don't stick and probably discard those. In the process, I realized Success is not as critical as 
that kind of experiencing and experimenting. So um, it was it was important in my twenties to fail well and to fail often. And when I say fail well, what I mean by that is when I fail and would and I did that regularly is can I learn from my failures? Can I not just fail and pretend they didn't happen, be in denial, walk away? But how, why did I fail? Uh, what did I do wrong? What can I learn from that? What can I do differently? For you then, what was a significant failure in your 20s that you feel like really impacted who you are? I, I started my InterVarsity career with 2100. I worked with them for five years. I started with them right out of college. And in my second year, Eric Miller, the director of 2100, brought me as his right-hand person. And essentially, he and I sort of ran 2100, made major decisions. And I would have to say I was getting full of myself. So uh, I think it was in my fourth year, I was able to hire an assistant. And this assistant um, came from New York City, was like worked for the mayor of New York City, had a sort of life of the party personality and all these gifts. And I thought, well, what a coup uh, to get her to come work for me. And um, about eight months or six or eight months into our working relationship, she came to me and she said, Paul, you are impossible to work for. I quit. And walked and my first response was, uh, uh, well, that's her problem. She needs to go work this out. <laughs> and then I realized, no, Paul, this is your problem. And the problem, and this took a while for me to come to this point, was you've worked with her in a way that you wanted her to make you more successful. Mm. So I don't know if it was four or five years later, I ran into her because she stayed with InterVarsity. I ran into her at an event. And I went up to her and said, I need to apologize to you for the way that I failed in my supervision of you. Will you forgive me? She said, oh, man, I, I forgave you a long time ago. Can I give you one more, Peggy? Sure. So my first, my first year on staff with 2100, I'm on a roll here now about my failures. So my first year on staff was with 2100. And I was uh, leading an evangelistic tour team with the evangelistic multimedia roadshow called 2100. We were in Indiana, northern Indiana. We were on a break. And so our team of four attended the northern Indiana uh, fall conference. And I was very excited when I heard who was speaking. The speaker was uh, Dr. Robert Coleman, who wrote the book Master Plan of Evangelism, which I loved. And I was just couldn't wait to meet him. Well, after his second talk, I realized this man is just not connecting with these students. This is not good. So I asked Dr. Coleman if I could have coffee with him after his second talk. And we sat down in an empty cafeteria, a pretty empty cafeteria. And I said, Dr. Coleman, you're just not connecting with these students. And you're, you're missing them. And he said, well, Paul, could you help me 
connect better with these students. You know, here I was, 21 years old, fresh out of college, telling this amazing expert in evangelism how to communicate with students, which he's been doing all his life. And he was humble to say, how can you help me? So we had this conversation, and then one of my tour team uh, colleagues, Al, uh, was actually sitting at a table, a couple tables away, having a cup of coffee and listening. And so after the conversation with Dr. Coleman, Al said, Paul, what were you thinking? That was, I said, pretty cool, huh? He listened to me. He took my advice. He goes, Paul, that was Dr. Robert Coleman. You don't do that. And I said, well, I was just helping him. Well, the conference director found out. He chewed me out. I learned from that that um, some things are best kept to yourself at age 21. Thanks for sharing that, Paul. I think especially for a senior consultant of university to be able to relate to you uh, at a younger age is, is really helpful to think there is hope for me as I keep growing in my leadership. How did those around you help you grow without squashing you, especially in some of the arrogant pieces? Because that obviously came out of some giftedness. I think one of the, the, the gifts from God to me was working with 2100 for five years. The mantra for 2100 um, was that we do team art, that no one gets credit for anything. Uh, you'll never see a 2100 production with an individual's name down as a director or producer. We, so it was drilled into us. We do team art, and what we do collectively is always going to be better than what an individual can do by herself or himself. Having that drilled in my head for five years helped take away some of the wanting to be a star, frankly, and it, it helped me be more of a team player. It helped me to want uh, see the value of collaborating with others. I was arrogant, my own Asian American way of being arrogant, and I think people were very forgiving and maybe saw potential in me and felt like I was worth investing in and putting up with my arrogance or, you know, whatever they saw in order to bring out the best in me. So one of the books you've written is Invitation to Lead. And it's one of my favorite books to recommend to Asian American students, especially Asian American men. I probably always have five copies in my closet to, to give out uh, when, when the time is right. Can I borrow a couple? <laughs> and it was first published 17 years ago, and it still shows up at conference tables, and I'm still passing them out. So what was your secret sauce in the book? What's in there that makes it so relevant? The secret sauce um, was probably a combination of my personal life experiences, the good, bad, and ugly, it also uh, was a combination of the, the season in life. So I was in my early 50s, so I had some experiences. I could look back and reflect on things. I'd been the Asian-American ministry coordinator for eight years at that point. I had uh, developed a lot as a leader within a varsity. And I would say another part of the secret sauce is Greg Howe, 
Greg Howe invested hours in in going through my manuscript and correcting mistakes and sharpening my thinking. He never got credit for it, but that book is so much better because Greg, and that's just Greg working behind the scenes, making other people better. What prompted you to write the book? Well, it came when I was Asian American ministry coordinator, and we were focusing a lot on uh, developing Asian American leaders. We were simultaneously putting together a project, a program called the Daniel Project, which was developing young Asian American leaders in university. I'd done a lot of reading, a lot of thinking about leadership development, a lot about Asian American things. I wanted to combine the two and I wanted to, it, it was as much as for, for my own good as it was hopefully for others that I just wanted to be able to think more coherently about all this. What message do you feel like you're communicating in your book that Asian Americans may not be hearing elsewhere? I think there are a couple of themes that I wanted to hit on in Invitation to Lead. And um, one of them is I wanted Asian Americans to uh, understand, know, and uh, accept and affirm their unique DNA and their, their unique gifting and unique backgrounds and to see them as positive attributes, not negatives, uh, which a lot of them, I think, had, had been viewing them. I also wanted them to have biblical paradigms, to, to look at some characters in scripture that I thought were kind of hand-in-glove paradigms for Asian Americans. So I did two chapters. I think I combined it in one chapter, looking at Esther and then also looking at Moses as paradigms of, for Asian American leaders. The other thing that happened was while I was writing it, uh, Jim Collins had just written a book called From Good to Great. And in it, he had one chapter, and it was called Level 5 Leaders. And essentially, he said, Level 5 Leaders sort of defy what you learn about leaders in business school and level five leaders, after he did a lot of research, are have two qualities in particular. One, they're very humble, and two, they're very uh, determined and lead with 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 force and confidence. And while those two traits seem to be contradictory, he said when you get the combination of those two traits in an individual, they are unstoppable as a leader. And when I read that, I thought, he is describing Asian Americans. Th that's us. In fact, I, I sent him that chapter. And I said, uh, Jim, <laughs> um, I'm writing this book. And I'm, I do this chapter. And I just want to make sure I'm on target. It, he graciously wrote me back. and said, yeah, I think you are. So I thought, woof, uh, I can go ahead and leave it in as a chapter. But I feel very strongly about that. There are a lot of Asian Americans who can be level five leaders. Thanks, Paul, for coming on and chatting. I've really loved being in the department with you, and you've been a deep encouragement to me as we work together. And I just feel like this episode is going to speak to a lot of young staff. Well, thanks, Peggy. Great to be a teammate of yours, and blessings on this uh, art of 
Ben venture that you're doing. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Let's continue the conversation. We're on Twitter and Instagram at the Art of Ven One. Email comments, questions, and requests for future topics to artofven at university.org. 